Good morning, church family. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John. Or you can open up your device and you can find him there as well. John chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I'll give you just a little bit of context about where we are at. You know, anytime we jump in the middle of a book or the middle of a passage or the middle of a verse, we, we need to know what was happening so that we can rightly understand. John chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Mere hours before Christ would hang dead on a criminal's cross, he enjoyed one last supper with his disciples. And in his account of what happened that night, John includes intimate details because he was more than a mere fly on the wall. He was an intimate participant that night. He was a friend of Jesus. And he participated in everything that unfolded that night. This, this passage that we're going to look at this morning highlights one of the Messiah's parting gifts to his buddies, his closest companions. He gives them an example to be copied, much in the same way that an art teacher would, would demonstrate the proper brushstroke on a canvas so that the students could then transfer what they've just seen and observed, and they would do the same. They would do likewise on their own. And Jesus teaches once again that joy is tied to obedience, this time showing that all who follow him are to serve one another with loving humility. So let's read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to go a little quickly because there's a lot to cover here. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to his, the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you, ha you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of our Lord. 
Amen. I think we've got a slide. What you're going to see on the slide behind me is two paintings, one of which I imagine almost everyone in this room recognizes. It's the girl with a pearl earring. Both are masterpieces produced by 17th century Dutch artist Johannes Vermeer, one of the most widely forged artists. He gained popularity for his ultra-photorealistic details in his paintings that were full of vibrant glows and contrasting shadows that left viewers in awe. His paintings didn't depict scenes of grandeur, which was very common at the time, but instead captured scenes of everyday middle-class life. Johannes Vermeer was an authentic artistic genius, even if he cheated. Yeah, you heard me. I said it. Since the late 1800s, people have suspected that his paintings are a little bit too good to be true. At least true in the natural sense of a guy having one of those little art things with all of his paint. You got the palette and he starts painting what he sees over here. Because that's not what he did. Or at least that's what leading scholars believe. He did not do it that way. Many artists and historians agree that Vermeer was able to capture real life the way he did through the use of a camera obscura, a device that projected the image that was, um, it was a, sorry, it was a device that projected an image through a small hole into the opposite side of a darkened space, such as a box or an enclosed room. Now, the problem with that would be that the image would be upside down and backwards. And this is where his genius comes into play. Because with a little bit of help from a mirror or two, a lens or two, everything would appear right side up. And what someone has actually demonstrated in a documentary called Thames Vermeer, he was able to have the entire recreation of the room you see in that painting to scale, projected through a tiny hole that was backwards and upside down. And through the use of mirrors and lenses that were constructed the same way that he would have constructed back then in the 17th century, he was able to see it right side up. Here comes the key piece. He used a mirror that would allow him to look down at his painting. And as he shifted his perspective, he was able to match up line and shade and contour precisely. Now listen, I'm not saying that this guy was doing dot to dot or color by numbers. I know some of you guys like your adult coloring books. I'm not saying that's what he was doing. But I'm also not saying he was Bob Ross up here just kind of winging it and making a bunch of happy little trees. He wasn't doing that either. I mean, if you have that technology and genius, if you want to do a good job, isn't it in your best interest to do whatever it takes to shift your perspective and use the resources available so you can follow the example set before you? Of course it does. And I think this morning, as we think about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and then commanding us to go and do likewise, we're going to need to shift our perspective as well. And we're going to want to follow the camera obscura, which is Jesus, to help us get our portraits just right in our life. Imitation is no easy task, though. Both the 17th century painter trying to capture the perfect shade of gray on an earring half hid behind locks of hair and the sinner saved by grace in the 21st century trying to follow the way of the master. Both are time-consuming. Both are fraught with trial and error and trying to make it right. If it's Jesus' example that we're trying to copy, 
what we see in John chapter 13, this portrait we see in the upper room at the Last Supper, we see that we're going to have to wash the feet of those who might turn their back on us. We're going to have to wash the feet of those who might stab us in the back. And we're going to wash the feet of those who will always have our back. So if you've got your hand out on the back side, I've already given you my whole sermon. There you go, point one, point two, point three, very easy to follow along. Point one, wash the feet of those who may turn their back on you. We see this in Peter. Verse one reveals that Jesus not only knew the events that were to transpire over the next 24 hours, but that he loved his own to the end. Utterly, completely. In one sense, that is to the end. But also to the very end of his life on earth. He loved them to the end. And he just demonstrated this in the middle of dinner. He gets up from the table and he takes it upon himself to do the task of a menial servant. Now think about it for a minute. I know if you were here for Sunday school, Pastor Dan asked us the question, how did people get around in Jesus' day? Camel, maybe an ox, some sort of animal. They had dirt roads and sandals, right? It sounds like an old country song, dirt roads and sandals. And, and you can imagine as you're walking behind the animal, or maybe you're riding an animal, and the call of nature occurs, it's just happening right there in the road. And you can imagine without indoor plumbing and modern conveniences, no amount of Purell is going to help you live with the filth and the stench and the horror that you're going to see by looking down at your feet. So maybe you're not catching it just yet. It's, it's so intense. This is such a bad and lowly, disgusting job that if you owned a Jewish slave, you were not allowed to make them clean the feet of someone that was below them. So far below them, you can't make them do it. Wait, hang on. You mean to tell me that I can have a slave, a household servant even, that I pay wages to, and I can't make them do that? Yeah. That's how bad, gross, disgusting, menial, below this type of job was. And that's what the Savior did. That's what the Savior did. Jesus served despite who he was, despite who he is. He was facing death the next morning, and yet he chose to set aside his honor and prestige as Lord and Master so that he could humbly serve his faithful friends by washing their feet. We don't need to ask why, because verse 15 tells us that he's given an example so that we could follow. And in 16, he adds that a servant is not greater than his master. The student learns from the teacher. The servant defers to the master. If Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, became a servant for the benefit of others, who are we to think that we are above that? What makes us think that we get off the hook from doing something lowly for the sake of one of our brothers or sisters in Christ. St. Augustine said it well when he said, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. You know, Jesus is not a fair-weather God. He is not rooting for you. He is not in your corner cheering you on. He is not advocating on your behalf to the Father when you're obedient, when things are going well, when you're having those devotions, when you're on ball, you're on point with all that he has commanded you, and then giving you the cold shoulder or stiff-arming you whenever you fall into sin. That's not how God operates. He is not a fair-weather friend. Jesus is here for us in our times of trouble. But you know, that can't be said so much about our friends. 
sadly, sometimes even Christian friends. Come on, we know this is true. We are sinners. Sometimes we are terrible friends. We have all experienced this on one side or the other where someone was in our corner. They were always there when things were going well, but when we got into trouble, financial trouble, relational trouble, trouble at work, trouble with our kids, they disappeared. They ghosted us. God's never going to ghost you. So what we see here is Jesus is serving Peter, someone he knew would deny him multiple times in triplicate. He served him by washing his feet anyway. Peter was a Jewish fisherman who happened to find himself in Jesus' inner circle. Some would even call him the leader of the twelve. Those in the community know that if they had a question about Jesus, go ask Peter. We know from the Synoptic Gospels that Peter confesses Christ as Lord after witnessing a miracle with an abundance of fish. We know that Peter is one of the first and boldest to ask questions about parables. This guy is hungry. He's eager. He's full of vibrant life. Maybe a little bit too much at some points in Scripture, as we'll come to see. But this man was a friend of Jesus. He loved him. And Jesus loved him in return. He loved him to the end. Sadly, Peter was a lot more like us than he was Jesus. As soon as the pressure elevated to a certain point, this man crumbled. He flaked out. He denied Jesus three times. And this is so strange if you, if you consider the timeline. This is a mere few hours after dinner. All right, so a few hours after dinner, we get Peter. When he's betrayed, right, what, what does Peter do? Unsheathes his sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Essentially, he's saying to anyone who would listen, you want a piece of him? You've got to come through me first. He is willing to throw down. That's your ride or die kind of friend right there. He is ready for you. He is in your corner. That's the kind of guy you want backing you up. Someone who's willing to lay caution to the wind and fight for you. Now, in this case, he was a little misunderstood. Sorry, rather, he misunderstood Jesus. Jesus had to correct him, put the dude's ear back on. But this is a guy who is ready to lay down his own life. He is willing to fight to the death if that's what it takes to keep Jesus from being arrested. And then, a few hours later, three times, wrong guy, not me. Nope, don't know what you're talking about. And then he goes on to cursing. What happened? What happened? You know, it's interesting, I find, I find it very interesting that the more we know about someone else, the more we allow them to know us, we become increasingly vulnerable. We open ourselves up wide. We don't have our hands up here to block our head. We go for that hug. We go for that embrace. We open up ourselves to so much hurt. Sadly, some of us have been burned before. We open ourselves up to so much hurt by loving others, by serving others, by demonstrating humility the way Jesus did. Peter did love Jesus, but he also failed him just like you've been failed. Jesus washed his feet anyway. You know, we can't always tell which of our friends, our Christian friends even, possibly people in this room, because we're sinners, right? 
We can't think that someone in this room won't fail us at some point. You can love me as much as you love any other pastor or any other brother in Christ, and I promise you, I will fail you at some point because I'm not perfect. I am still trying by the grace of God to be more like his son, and you're going to fail me. But we can't always tell who's going to be a fair-weather friend. Who's going to be in our corner today when we're at church, when we're giving, when we're faithful, when we're praying? And six months from now, when we've train-wrecked our life, who's going to disappear? Even though we would see them on Sunday morning, but they will not be at your house Tuesday night crying with you. We don't know who's going to do that. If anyone, this church is pretty healthy in that regard, but who knows what the Lord has in store for us. You know, it's a little bit easier, though, to find out who the fair-weather people are in sports. You probably know where this is going. They're, they're the guy or the girl who's rah, rah, re. You know, they've got the jerseys. they got the pennants. They have the, maybe the t- tattoo. I hope not, right? Because what happens when the team goes south? They get on a losing streak. You know, too many pick sixes, too many whatever. And they start trading players off their fantasy football team. They stop watching the games. Some of them might burn the jersey, but most of them, if they're smart, know they can recoup their money at the yard sale next spring, which you know, because they're fair with their fans, you're going to get a nice discount in the spring because they're selling all their gear because they thought the team was good based off whatever ESPN said in the fall. And then what happened? It didn't pan out. It was no longer convenient to be a fan of the lovable losers. I mean, not like you guys have any experience with that here in Michigan, right? Come on. Come on. Or if you're a Packer fan, you know, we'll just throw that in there, right? Just if we're gonna, you gotta hit them all, right? You know, you know, here's, here's, this is side. It's crazy there's a bigger response when I talk about your sports and less of a response when I talk about your soul. Hmm. Think on that one for a minute. You know the type of fans who are fair weather. It's easy to see and it's habitual with some of the same folks, but you don't know how it's gonna pan out with your friends. So I encourage you to love people anyways. Serve them sacrificially, with humility anyway. Open yourself up for her. And if they turn your back on you, just know that Jesus had someone turn their back on him first. The one and others in the Bible aren't only for those who will never hurt you. It's for the people sitting next to you. More specifically, this Christian community that we're talking about through all of our one another sermons this year, who's your closest one another? Oftentimes, it's your spouse and your children, isn't it? And when we think about that, we start to feel a little uncomfortable because it's easy to love other people when I only see them in small doses. It's harder to love people you see all the time who see you at your worst and then correct you. It's hard to love people that you want to have greater influence and control over, but you just can't seem to win. Some of us here are living in the midst of relational turmoil, whether it's with your kids or your spouse, and you know who you are, and God knows who you are. And so what I would say to you is this. There will be times when your closest loved ones feel distant, There will be times when there are far more tears of sadness and frustration and anger than there are joys, joyful tears and and smiles. There will be times when it feels like the very people who were designed by God covenantally to be the closest to you are the ones who couldn't possibly be farther away. 
And Satan would have you use this as a reason to stop serving them, to stop pursuing them, to stop loving them the way you ought to. And of course, that only leads to more problems because you have to know he's also whispering in his ear too, the same message. He's whispering to their ears too. Doesn't he know how much I take out the trash? Doesn't he know how many times I fold his laundry? Doesn't she know how many times I fill up her gas tank? Doesn't doesn't he know how many times I've cleaned out the refrigerator? And and yet he's going to treat me like that? Doesn't he know how many times I've not cared that he went and hung out with his friends? And and yet I get the third degree. Satan is going to whisper in our ears and try to turn us against one another instead of following Jesus' example and loving one another by washing their feet, so to speak, by serving them. He's going to try to shut you down. Jesus says that we are to do just as he has done by washing their feet. And if we're going to understand that properly, that means we have to embrace humility and show our love through acts of service. And in the case of Peter, it means we're going to serve even those who turn their back on us. But he washes more than one guy's feet. Who else does he wash? washes Judas's feet. So we know that we also have to wash the feet of those who might stab us in the back. And I know some of you are thinking, wait, hang on, isn't that what Peter just did? Hang on real quick. So I, I'm, I'm splitting hairs here. We call this semantics. You're splitting hairs for precise language. Here's how I come up with the distinction. Peter was a good friend a lot of the times. And yes, he failed. He was wildly inconsistent. But let's not forget that Jesus restored him. Denied him three times, he restored him three times. He was restored. That brother got right back up on the horse, and he kept on going. That guy finished his course well. He was restored. And also, he didn't actively pursue or work against Jesus, but Judas, on the other hand, he plotted, planned, and performed his wickedness, his act of treachery, his treason. He actively and intentionally worked against Jesus, and this wolf in sheep's clothing sold his friend for 30 pieces of silver. And then he simultaneously confirmed Jesus' identity and sealed his fate with a kiss. Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. What difficulties might we face if we're going to love like Jesus, if we're going to serve like Jesus, if we're going to wash other people's feet like Jesus? I think one of the obstacles or some of the obstacles we might face in washing the feet of people who might stab us in the back, bless you, I think the biggest issue we're going to face is wrong beliefs about ourselves. Church hurt is real. You guys know I like to do this from time to time. Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by someone in church. Now look around the room, everyone. Go ahead. There's no shame here. My hand's up. It's real. It might have even happened in this church, and by the grace of God, you're here. Anyway, it might have been at your last church, and by the grace of God, you're here. It really, really, really torques me when the people who should be, of all people, the very hands and feet of Christ hurt someone else in Christ. 
Now, sure, sometimes it's very incidental, and people have no idea that they hurt your feelings. And other times, we're just sinners, and we kind of know what we're doing, and we don't care, and we do it anyway. We say the hurtful thing because we are so frustrated. We're so fed up. Church hurt is real. Jesus, Jesus experienced that same thing, but to a far greater degree. You know people who will never step foot in church again because they've been hurt. We often think that our life, as long as we are obedient to God, as long as we are faithful to him, as long as we are giving, as long as we are reading, as long as we are praying, that our life should be free from trials and discomfort. And anything that threatens that clearly is not of God. Anytime something comes up that might jeopardize these, we make a lot of noise and a lot of frustration enters into our minds and our heart. And, and Jesus knew this would happen. That's why in verse 12, he knew, right? In verse 12, he knew that we would question his command. So he says, starting in verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And again, remember how outrageous it is for him to do this of his own volition and then to command others follow the example. Jesus cements his status, Lord, commander, master, you name it. He knows, and everyone else listening and everyone in that room knows Jesus is on another level. He has authority. He has power. They just got done watching his triumphal entry just a few days before. They know the throngs of crowds that have almost you know, trampled all of the countryside following him. They know he is a wise teacher. They know he is a man of God. They know that he has the ability and the authority and the right to command this. And he also don't care because he knows their heart. You think they want to do this? You think they want to wash each other's feet? Not at all. He knows that our fragile human ego would elevate our own self-worth, thus causing our obedience to stall out. So Jesus says in verse 16, he annihilates any rebuttal we would have about who we are and, and why we might object to obeying him. And he says, truly, truly, or if you grew up in the KJV, you remember this as verily, verily. This is Jesus getting your attention saying, hey, listen up, this, this right here. If you hear nothing else, hear this. He says, you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. As one commentator put it, he said this, no emissary, no emissary has the right to think he is exempt from tasks, cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him. And no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. We need to remember, we are not the commander. We are not the master. We are not the teacher. We are sheep. We are students. And that is a joyful thing because God help us, help us if any of us could actually have as much power as he did, as he does so one of the difficulties we're going to face in trying to obey Christ is wrong beliefs about ourselves. So we have to ask, what helps? What does the gospel give us to help us if we're not really easily going to be able to obey? Here's the answer. Right beliefs about God. 
If wrong beliefs about us is the problem with obedience, then right beliefs about God is the key to unlock successful obedience. John is careful to record what was at the forefront of Christ's mind when he got up from the table. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus had otherworldly knowledge, supernatural knowledge. This doesn't surprise us. The Son knows that he must obey the Father who sent him. That's the part that gets a little tricky for us to wrap our heads around. How do you know that this man is going to turn his back on you and this one will come just short of stabbing you in the back, literally, and yet you need to obey the Father and wash his feet anyway? That every single person you would die for because you love so much would sin against you even after you save them and have washed them clean. And yet he obeyed the Father joyfully. If Jesus can obey his Father, knowing all of the pain that it would cost him, all of the uncomfortness, uncomfortableness, all of the wasted time, right? Didn't Jesus want some me time? He didn't want to go help people in their distress or their comfort. Didn't he just want to hang out and relax with his friends? He didn't want that call at 2.30 to go help out somebody move. No, of course, he made himself available. And he did this because he understood that he was sent to earth with a mission to accomplish, one that included sacrificial love and menial tasks. The better you know God, the easier it is to trust him and obey because you know that he is good all of the time. Jesus' correct understanding about God the Father enabled him to wash the feet of the betrayer, the one who would stab him in the back. We've already agreed we don't know who's going to do us dirty, and that point is irrelevant. You serve humbly. You wash their feet anyway. One of the costliest requirements of Christ-like character is to wash the feet of those who might do us harm. What does this look like for you? What does this look like for any of us? Maybe it means fostering at-risk kids. Maybe it means lending someone an expensive tool, knowing full well you might never see it again. Maybe it means lending someone your second car, knowing that the last time you saw them drive, it looked like they were auditioning for the next Fast and Furious movie. It means putting up something that has high worth to you and allowing someone else to use it or putting yourself in a position where it's going to cost you something, maybe some time, maybe some money, maybe physical harm. Now, don't hate me, but I came across this, and I thought, you know what? This is exactly what God wanted me to say here. Maybe it looks like a sacrificing comfort the next time an opportunity arises. Many of you remember 2015, 2016, 2017, so it's, it's been a handful of years. But around that time, there was a lot of dialogue in this country about whether or not Western countries should admit refugees from the Middle East. What if terrorists disguise themselves as refugees and then they infiltrate our company and they kill people and they hurt people and they blow stuff up? I'm not saying that those thoughts or those concerns are wrong, but I'm saying what reflects Christ-like character more? Allowing someone to come in, knowing full well there's a possibility that you may be harmed through an act of charity, or saying, you know what, that's too big of a risk, uh, find somewhere else to go. 
It's not an easy conversation to have, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but it is an interesting thought. We see in this passage in the upper room how Jesus commands us to wash the feet of those who might turn their back on us. We see that in Peter. Who might stab us in the back. We see that in Judas. But we also see that we need to wash the feet of everyone else, those who will always have our back. And then there were 10 apostles, that is. We've already talked about two of the more well-known men, but what about the rest? Peter's brother, Andrew. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, these men remained loyal to Christ. They always had his back. And they paid with it for their life. They suffered gruesome deaths. Not the sort of thing you're going to win a lot of converts with. You let them know, hey, you're going you're gonna to be crucified just like your friend. Sure, sign me up. Even if you would have told them, point blank, you will die just as miserably as Jesus did. I don't think it would have phased these guys. They were loyal to the end. Now, just because you've got some loyal friends, just because we collectively have loyal friends, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to obey this one. Sure, it's going to be easier. It's easy to love people and serve them and give them our time and our money and, and our counsel. It's easy to share with those who are nice to us and have never given us a reason to mistrust them. But sometimes we hear a little whisper in our ear. The flesh rises its ugly head and we, we remember not everyone is on our level. What do I mean by that? Well, let's real quick, let's go back to scriptures so we can make this more clear. Uh, Luke records a different um, piece of information that uh, John didn't care to include. That uh, around this time of the Last Supper, Jesus hanging out with his buddies, you got at least two of these knuckleheads arguing, fighting over who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? It's me. Surely it's me. It can't be you. You see, as, as sinful men, as sinful women, we have an internal mechanism that allows us to evaluate human worth. We do that. We won't admit to it, but we do. Now, these men might have had no problem at all washing Jesus' feet, much in the same way you probably wouldn't mind uh, going to wash the car of the president, or maybe even going over to Pastor Daniel's house and taking out the trash for him if he's on vacation. You probably wouldn't mind. But doing that for one another, the people who sit next to you, eh, take out your own trash. You paint your own flower bed. We, we, send, we, we tend to balk at the idea of, of horizontal service. Vertical service, we're good with. God, let me serve you. Let me honor you. If, there, if there's a pastor, if, if there's a statesman, if there's, if there's a CEO, we want to roll out the red carpet and give them all that their title is equal to, all that their title and role deserve. But when it comes to serving one another, we tend to act no better than the disciples in this room. Who's better? Who's higher? Now, we, we know that sometimes we're going to be serving people who are not our equals. And, and that really raises an interesting issue because as we have this ranking system in our heart, our flesh is going to remind us and tell us the next time you see a prayer request or you are observant of a need, well, they never would have been in this situation if they just took care of their money better. They wouldn't argue so much if they would just do what the Bible says. 
man, your kids wouldn't be wilding out uh, if you just parented better. And listen, come over to my house. I've got three quick steps in a book that I will give you, and it will fix your problems. We do this. Not, not a lot in this church, praise God, but it could happen if we're not careful. We see the problems with each other, or we hear about prayer needs, and we think, they're not on my level. They don't have the theological knowledge I have. They don't have the bank account I have. They don't have the title I have. They don't have their life as well put together as I do. Their retirement plans aren't the same as mine. Well, why should I help them? They've squandered the opportunity. They did this to themselves. If only they would have paid more attention. If only they would have been here to Sunday school. If only they started showing up on Wednesday, they would not have these problems. And so now I've elevated myself and I've looked down my nose at my brother and how dare you ask me to serve him? How dare you ask me or even expect that I would remove my outer garments and wash his feet? He stepped in the mess. I didn't. Why on earth are you asking me, Jesus? Why would you expect that I would clean the filth off of this man's feet? He stepped in the mess. I didn't. I know how to walk around. I keep my head on a swivel. He did this to himself. How dare you ask me? And Jesus said, I've already done it. And I've done it for you. And I've done it for you multiple times. Some of us in this room don't only see it that way. We look at someone by the color of their hair or whether or not they have any. And we think I'm better than them. Some of us who are older or those even older than me, look at the young men and women or the younger moms and dads even, maybe the young singles. And we think... They are inferior to me because at their age, I was doing X, Y, and Z. At their age, I possessed this much money. I had a house. I had a 401k. I did this, this, and this, and they are useless. Like, seriously, did you see Jason yesterday trying to use that wrench? Like, what's this brother doing? Because you know it's true, but that doesn't mean they are worthless. And it doesn't mean that you're superior just because your generation had it differently. Now, young guys and young ladies, here's your chance to get under the grill Sometimes we look at people who are bald or balding or those who have a head full of white hair and praise God they still have it. Mine is going quickly. And we think, seriously, how hard is it to attach an email or attach a document to an email? How do you not know how to check your Facebook, mom? Grandma, you need to hit end call, not do this with your phone when we're doing FaceTime. And we can easily think they are inferior to us because they are older. Everything they have to say, every piece of wisdom they think they have is outdated at best, obsolete at worst. Why in the world would I listen to you? You're an old man. You're an old woman. Get out of my face. You don't know what it's like to be me. And sometimes that will stop us from serving one another, washing one another's feet because we're too cocky and we've elevated our sense of self-worth. What are we doing on time? Time to wrap it up, I think. I hate the blue letters on the clock, the blue numbers. All right. So, Jesus answered the disciple. He said, if you, sorry, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, this washing in the upper room was highly symbolic, just like Vermeer's paintings. There's so much nuance. There's so many layers to this. In one sense, the very most literal sense, Jesus washed filth off of the disciples' feet. Something they wouldn't even do for themselves, even though they're having dinner with crap on their feet. Sorry, it had to be said. That's literally what was happening. They're eating, and there's filth on their feet. They wouldn't even wash each other's feet. Jesus literally cleansed their flesh and their body. 
But in another sense, this was symbolic of the true washing that Jesus would provide through his cleansing blood that he shed for us on the cross. The true cleansing, the better cleansing. Jesus, in the apex of his passion, the Holy One of Israel, the promised Messiah, the Son of God incarnate, Lord of lords and King of kings, graced our earth and lived for us and served us perfectly. It cost him everything. You cannot possibly realize, much in the same way that I can never fully realize this side of glory, what it cost him to wash us, to submit and be humble, to be obedient, to have true humility in his loving service to one another. If filthy feet are not washed by water, they remain dirty. And if sinful men are not washed by blood, they remain enemies of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been washed and you know it. Maybe you're in this room and you think you've been washed, but you smell kind of funky and now you're not exactly sure if you've been washed. You take a look at the past six months of your life and you're thinking, you know what? I don't honestly know if I'm a Christian. There's good news for you. Jesus died on the cross so that he could atone for your sin. And if you cry out to him in repentance and faith, God says that he is faithful and just to forgive you. He has purchased your salvation. And if you're here today and you are rock solid, firm on the foundation of Christ, you are a Christian, then you have to examine your life here and ask, how am I doing? Am I washing other people's feet? Meaning, am I, am I humbly serving them? Am I being obedient I pray that throughout this entire message, what we're walking away with is a new burning desire to cast aside our personal preferences and to submit to one another through humble acts of loving service. May the Spirit of God wash us from our dirty and wrongful thinking. May he wash us from our pride and our man-centeredness and instead fuel in us a burning, white-hot desire like Pastor Daniel prayed for, for obedience for the name and glory of Jesus. May it never be said that we were unwilling to follow Jesus' example. He is, after all, our camera obscura. We shift our perspective just a little bit and we get our masterpiece picture perfect because of him, through his power. Let's pray. Father God, as you bring the worship team up now, I, I thank you for this church, Lord. This pastor's heart is overwhelmed with joy because a message like this is not hard to preach because as we covenant with one another, there is so much joyful obedience. There is so much serving one another and loving one another and like today's washing one another's feet. So this isn't a corrective sermon by any means, Lord. This is a, hey, let's watch out. Let's be careful kind of sermon, Lord. And I'm thankful that you laid this on my heart. Because I know even in my own heart, if I don't remember all of the ways in which I'm supposed to serve you and serve each other through humble acts of service, like washing feet, menial tasks, things that are inconveniencing, Lord, I might forget and I might fall by the wayside, Lord. So I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help all of us to remember and to never forget this command to wash one another's feet. And Lord, as the flesh wages war against obedience, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember your command that we are to wash the feet of those 
who might turn their back on us. That we need to wash the feet of those who might stab us in the back. And that we might need to wash the feet of those who will always have our back, even if they are superior or inferior to us, Lord. There's, there's no measurement here, Lord. We're just supposed to wash. Help us to be washers, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.